Well, friends, something very exciting happened on Friday. We finished the feast. Yeah. So uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're new today or haven't been tuned in, uh, the feast is a 40-day Bible emphasis that we did as a church, and Friday was day 40. And so we finished it, but I want to remind you that as we've been saying all along, that the point of this was not just to do something for 40 days and then stop. So we want to keep reading, keep listening to Scripture, keep engaging with God's Word, and to build on the momentum that you've hopefully established in the 40 days to go on for all the days to come. So keep it up. Uh, Last week I talked about some ideas of how to keep going and uh, Bible reading plans you can follow and some ideas for that. If you missed that, you can go back and see the service video or hear the sermon podcast from last week and get those ideas. But we're going to keep going with this, but it's exciting to celebrate that we, that we finished our 40 days. One of the things we've been doing as we've been going to reflect on God's Word is to have different people share of what they uh, saw, how God spoke to them in the passages we read the previous week. And uh, today, to, to finish us off, I want to ask my wife Echo to come and share what, what, uh, what she saw. I feel like I should get at least as much cheer as like a potluck. Come on. That was better. That was better. Good morning. One of the things that the Lord highlighted for me way back in the beginning of the feast when we were uh, reading in the Old Testament was this cycle that I kept seeing repeated of people asking questions, having questions and concerns and a little bit of arguing, going to God with their questions, followed by obedience that led into worship. And that cycle, just I just kept seeing it throughout, throughout the Bible. I saw it with Moses and Abraham and David, these questions that led to obedience that led into worship. And then on day 39 of the feast, this was highlighted once again. I'm going to read James 1, 2 through 8 to you. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. And because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed, tosses by the wind, that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. It doesn't say, go find a really good blog. (laughs) It doesn't say, listen to a popular podcast. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, if you have questions, ask God. As I was reading in in that day's um, reading, a couple other times it was talking about becoming more like Christ. And so James uh, 1, 19 through 21 says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Does that sound like a description of anybody that's, that describes God? 
<laughs> for man's anger does not bring about the righteousness, the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And then again over in First John 3, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And the Lord just showed me that, that cycle again. Ask questions in God's presence. Go to God with your questions. Spend time with him. That's where we know him. That's where we become more like him. That's where we, we can trust in him. Our faith is built in his presence. And that leads to obedience, with, which leads to worship. I was raised in a, in a pre, pretty legalistic environment, a rule-based environment that always started with the obedience. Well, you obey because God told you to. You start with obedience out of duty, out of obligation, and then you worship because God deserves your worship, and he does. Out of discipline, you worship. But as I, as I grew in my faith and really realized that I was starting in the wrong place, you can't start with obedience. You have to start in his presence. And when we start in his presence, when we soak in his presence, when we spend time with him, we know him. We hear him speak to us. He answers our questions. He answers the cry of our heart. And from that, naturally leads to obedience, which naturally leads to worship, which naturally leads back to his presence. And so that, for me, was just such a good reminder. Because, um, you know, when things are hardwired, when you're raised in that, like, well, obey first, obey first, you've got to be disciplined, it's, it's, it takes a lifetime <laughs> to, to go back and, and rewire. But for me, I was just reminded, like, it's got to start in his presence. It's got to start in his presence. So what I'm going to do for my next 40 days is go back. I, I read the overview plan, the like three to four chapters, two to three chapters. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and read the highlight plan and just go one, one chapter a day and really focus on sitting in the presence of the Lord. Thank you all. Wow, awesome. Good. If you've uh, been here the last uh, few weeks, you know that there have been a couple days where I had to skip over some stuff for the sake of time. And part of what I wanted to do today was to catch, catch up on a couple of those things that I'd mentioned, because I think they'll be really helpful as we move forward in reading and engaging with Scripture. So one of the things I want to think about is how do we know what to bring forward from the Old Testament into our lives today? How do we know what to bring forward from the Old Testament into our lives today, given that we're living under a new covenant through Jesus? Now, for some parts of the Old Testament, it's pretty intuitive what, uh, how we should apply that. You know, when we're reading the narrative parts of the Old Testament, we understand we're supposed to learn from these stories and the examples of those Old Testament characters. And I, I would imagine that for a lot of us, when we get to Psalms and Proverbs, it's pretty similar. 
Like the Proverbs are pretty timeless. The wisdom there we can pretty easily, easy, easily grasp and apply. And when we read the Psalms, we identify with the full range of emotions there. And we identify with the laments and we hear the exhortations to praise the Lord and we see all the descriptions of God's character and so we can kind of easily identify that and apply that. I, I talked a few weeks ago about the prophetic books and how we can learn from the reminders that are given there about Israel's identity and those uh, messages of accusation that God brings against the people through his prophets. And we can learn from the warnings of judgment and the promises of restoration. So we, we see that there's value there for us in the prophetic books. But what about the Old Testament law? What about the commands and the instructions that are in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Do those parts of Scripture still apply to us today? And um, the, the short answer to that is yes, they do apply. Because remember, Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So they apply, but it's still fair to ask, how does the law apply to us today, uh, given that we're under the new covenant with Jesus? Uh, it still applies, but not all the parts of the law apply to us the same way as they apply to the ancient Israelites. So how do we know how to apply the law to our life today? Uh, well, first of all, we know that whatever the New Testament affirms still needs to be obeyed. So there are parts of the Old Testament law that are reaffirmed in the New Testament. An example of this is in Acts 15. The leaders of the early church are gathered together to figure out what do we do with all the Gentiles who are wanting to follow Jesus. And the question was, do they need to become Jews in order to become Christians? And the conclusion of that church council was that no, uh, people, Gentiles do not have to become Jewish. They do not have to undergo circumcision. They do not have to follow all the requirements of the law. But the leaders said, but there are four things we're going to ask them to do, and one of those was to abstain from sexual immorality. And remember, these are Jewish leaders saying this. Their idea of what was sexually moral or immoral was shaped by the Old Testament, by the law and what it says. And so there we have a part of the Old Testament law that's affirmed for us today. So what the Old Testament says, what the law says about, about sex, that it's good in marriage, but sinful outside of marriage, that still applies to us today. That's a part of the law that we do need to obey because it was specifically affirmed in the New Testament. There's other parts of the Old Testament law that, that Jesus affirmed and reframed in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus says, hey, it's no longer just the standard of don't, don't commit adultery, it's don't lust. It's not just don't commit murder, it's don't hate. It's not just don't break an oath that you've sworn, it's don't be dishonest at all. And so Jesus is internalizing those standards from being just external actions to hard attitudes, and he's raising the bar on those standards as well. But anything that we see affirmed or affirmed and reframed in the New Testament, then we still need to obey those parts of the law. We can also say that whatever has been fulfilled or superseded does not need to be obeyed. And we see the New Testament is clear about this in a few places. For example, when you read the book of Hebrews, one of the points there is that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is a once-for-all sacrifice. And so we no longer need to offer animals on altars as sacrifices. That was just foreshadowing the reality that was coming with Jesus. 
it would be inappropriate to still try to worship that way in light of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We saw a few weeks ago how as believers in Jesus we have a priestly identity and how we are collectively and individually the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the parts of the law that talk about the duties of priests and the instructions for building the tabernacle and all its furnishings, those are parts of the law that we don't have to obey today. Now, there's still value in those parts of Scripture. We saw that when we were looking at Exodus last fall. We can still learn from those parts of Scripture, but we don't have to obey them by literally building a tabernacle or by doing priestly duties the same way the ancient Israelites had to follow it. The New Testament is clear that circumcision is no longer a requirement. That does not mean under the New Covenant what it meant for those who are under the Old Covenant. Uh, Paul says in Colossians, he says, don't give too much emphasis to special holidays and festivals and Sabbaths. But he also says, don't pass judgment on those who do. So that we live out the principle of the Sabbath, that we have a regular rhythm of work and rest in our lives, that really matters. But if someone's Sabbath day isn't literally on Saturday, or even on Sunday for that matter, we don't pass judgment on them for that. You know, and I think this applies to some of these other things as well. If someone wants to circumcise their son, uh, it's fine for them to do that. You know, you know uh, one of the things that's also superseded or no longer applies the same way in our era is the, the food laws, the clean and unclean laws. In Mark 7, 19, Jesus declares all foods clean. And in Romans 14, 14, Paul says nothing is unclean in and of itself. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, receive anything, anything that's offered to you if you can receive it with gratitude. So the kosher laws don't apply, but if someone wants to keep the kosher laws, that's fine for them to do. If someone wants to observe uh, Jewish holidays and festivals, that's fine to do. It's also fine if people don't have a conviction on that not to do it, but it's fine if people do. So there's some flexibility and freedom there, Just have to, but they, those parts of the law don't apply to us the same way they applied to the ancient Israelites. Now, having said all of that, there are parts of the Old Testament that don't fit either of these categories that the New Testament just doesn't say anything about, doesn't affirm that they need to be obeyed, doesn't say it's been fulfilled or superseded. So what do we do with those parts of the law? Well, with the parts of the law that are either fulfilled or neither fulfilled nor affirmed, how do we apply those? First of all, we can say, use your Holy Spirit-informed common sense. So if there's a command that's very obviously specific to a nomadic or agrarian culture, then we're probably pretty safe in assuming that's not going to apply to us the same way today. Not something that needs to be followed. So we can use our Holy Spirit-informed common sense for those parts of the law. But also, um, I'd encourage you to find meaning in passages, not just verses. So, for example, when I read the parts of the Old Testament law that talk about the sacrificial system, and here's how you offer a guilt offering, and here's how you offer a sin offering, here's how you offer a fellowship offering, and here's the grain offering, here's the drink offering. All those offerings, I'll tell you, not every verse in those passages is just like heavy with meaning for me. You know, there's a phrase that's repeated there, that there's this repeated command to burn, burn the fatty portions in the entrails. And that's never landed with Holy Spirit unction on me. Like, oh, burn the entrails, so good, so good. Let's sing that song. 
so reading through verse by verse, I'm not like thinking, oh, this is amazing, this totally applies to me. But you know, when I zoom out and I look at the passage, there's meaning there for me. I say, wow, thank you, Jesus, that I don't have to offer these sacrifices. Thank you that you are the once for all sacrifice for me. Thank you that you provided through your death on the cross my, the, for my sin to be forgiven, for my guilt to be removed, for right relationship with you and with others. Thank you that your death provides all the benefit of these animal sacrifices provided for people under that covenant. Thank you, Jesus. And as I read those two, I'm sometimes just reminded, God, you take sin so seriously. It was such a big deal for people to atone for their sin. And sometimes, God, I forget what a big deal it is. I don't want to take your grace and mercy for granted. Thank you for this reminder. So sometimes it's when we can zoom out and look at a passage, that's where we'll, we'll find the meaning rather than verse by verse. Another <coughs> excuse me, suggestion for applying these parts of the law is to identify the principle underneath the law that we're reading. Remember that Jesus said that all the law could be summarized with two commands. Do you remember what they were? Love God and love your neighbor. So when we're reading through all the commands and instructions in the Old Testament, a question we can ask is, how would, how would them obeying this command have helped them love God or love their neighbor? And then when we see that, we can apply that same principle to our lives today. I think an example of this is, uh, for example, there's a command in the Old Testament law to build a parapet around your roof, so low railing around your roof. Uh, roofs in Bible times were flat, and it was a place where people would hang out. It was more comfortable often than being inside or even being in the courtyard of the house, so you'd hang out on the roof, and so this is a safety measure so that when you have guests over, they don't fall off your roof. So, And you might read that part and say, okay, I get how it made sense for them back then, but my roof isn't flat. I hardly ever hang out on my roof. I never take guests up there. So what on earth does this mean for me? And you can think, well, maybe it means that I should have a railing around my deck so people don't fall off. And yeah, but I think there's an even more basic principle underneath that, which is that it's loving when you have guests over to provide a safe environment for them. It's loving to try to prevent harm from coming to people who are guests in your home. So then we think, okay, how does that apply in my life, in wherever, whatever my living situation is? And so we're applying the principle underneath the law, even if we don't literally build a fence around our, our rooftop. Uh, a fourth uh, way we can apply the law is to reflect on how it's been fulfilled in Jesus and let that lead us to worship. Kind of what I talked about when we think about the sacrificial uh, system sections and other parts of the law as well. How is this fulfilled in Jesus? And then we can let that lead us to worship. And then finally, I would just encourage you as you read those parts of the law to be open to God speaking to you in unexpected ways. Because sometimes God will speak to you through a passage that you would least expect him to use to speak to you. And what he says to you might not be the application that everyone who reads that passage is meant to take away from it, but it's something that he wants you to see and think about and apply to your life. I was thinking about what this could look like, and I was thinking about the chapters in the law that talk about how to tell if that patch of mildew on your tent is troublesome, and if you should cut it out, and how you involve the priest to help you figure that out. Now, and it's like, it goes on and on. It's a lot of information about mildew and tents. 
And so when you're reading that section of the law, you might think, you know what, this, there's no way this applies to me. I don't even own a tent. Or maybe I do, but mildew has never been a major struggle of my life. I, that, this just this, this does not apply. And that's true on that surface level. But maybe as you're reading that passage, God might speak to you and say, you know, you've actually got a patch of sin in your life that if you don't deal with it, it's going to ruin your whole life just like that mildew could ruin the whole tent. And you actually do need to cut that out of your life. And you might need help from spiritual leaders to do that. Now, is that the point of that passage about mildew? It's really not. It's not the reason it was written. And that's not an application that every person who reads that passage should take away from it, but it might be a way that God speaks to you as you read it. And so it's a word that you need to apply. And so just as you're reading, even the parts of the law that you go, I just don't think this is going to apply, read them with a, with a mind open to the Lord, with your spiritual ears attuned to Him, and say, God, but if you want to speak to me, I don't want to miss it, even in one of, in one of those passages. So be open to how God would speak. Now, even with all of these ideas and suggestions, there still are parts of the Old Testament that, to be really frank, might feel like a bit of a slog when you're reading through. For me, the parts of the law, uh, it's easy for me to get bogged down, and some of the prophetic books still, it's just uh, it's hard, hard for me to, to keep going and feel like I'm getting a lot from it. So I just would encourage you, as you think about reading the Old Testament, uh, it matters that you read all of it but you can start with the parts that make the most sense to you. So there's no rule that you have to read through the Old Testament all in order. So read, and if you get to a section where you say, I just don't know that I'm getting this, this is super dry, this is hard or confusing, it's okay to skip ahead to another section and read there. Now again, eventually you want to read it all, but it's okay to start with the parts that make the most sense and build up a momentum. Also, uh, I think I mentioned this last week, but remember that it's legal to read for more than one section of Scripture at a time. So if you're reading in the Old Testament and it's one of those uh, passages or, or sections, you just go, boy, this is, th- this is tough for me. This feels dry. Still persevere. Still have your ears open to the Lord, but also read from Psalms or read from the Gospels or from another part of Scripture that you feel like this is something that I, I get and I can understand and apply. So um, it's, okay, it's okay to mix it up. And I just would encourage us, as we're reading all of Scripture, including the Old Testament, including the Old Testament law, that we would claim the promise of 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God, and all Scripture is useful. And that's true even of the parts that might be harder for us to initially understand and apply. Uh, it's also true of the book of Revelation. This was something that I was uh, going to talk about last week as we were coming up on Revelation. I want to talk about it today because uh, I hope that you're going to read Revelation again in the future. And so I just want to give us some ideas on how to read Revelation profitably. In our, uh, in our time together this morning, I cannot fully explain Revelation to you. I don't think I could do that if we had unlimited time. But I can give you a few tips and, and guidelines on how to read Revelation profitably. And the first suggestion, as I have it up there, is to read it as apocalyptic literature. That means recognizing the type of genre of literature that it is. Uh, Apocalyptic literature was a genre of literature that was very familiar to the people who first received the book of Revelation, but it's not familiar to us. And this is really different than the other types of literature we see in Scripture. 
we have parallels for them. Like we understand something of what it means to read poetry or to read a proverb or to read a narrative or to read biography. We have some parallels. We have somewhat of a starting point, but we don't really have a parallel for apocalyptic literature. And so when we come to Revelation and start reading, we find ourselves thinking, this is not like anything I've ever read before. Really, out of Scripture and even in Scripture, aside from some parts of Daniel and Ezekiel, Revelation really stands alone. And so um, we have to appreciate that, that we don't have a parallel, that it's going to take some extra effort for us to understand even how we read this type of literature so that we can understand what God wants us to understand in Revelation. Um, now, the people who first received it had the advantage that this was familiar to them. They knew apocalyptic literature well, and they understood sort of the conventions of how you approach it and read it, the things that they just took for granted that we don't necessarily know. For example, I was reading about this a couple weeks ago, and one scholar said, oh yeah, it was just kind of common knowledge in apocalyptic literature outside of Scripture that animals stand for men, and cosmic signs represent supernatural phenomenon, and numbers represent God's control of history. I'm like, well, I didn't know that, because this isn't a familiar genre for me. But people are reading it then, that would have been their starting point for understanding it. So you've got to appreciate that there's going to be a bit of a learning curve for us to understand how we're supposed to read and understand Revelation. It helps to understand the purpose for which apocalyptic literature was written. Uh, apocalyptic literature is written to sort of pull back the curtain of reality so that we can better understand our present and our future. It was often written to people undergoing persecution and suffering, and it was written to say, hey, look, there's another story being written other than the one that you're living. There's another reality, and if you understand that supernatural heavenly reality, it'll help you make more sense of the reality that you're living through right now. So that's why apocalyptic literature was written. And it's also important to understand that apocalyptic literature is just that. It's literature. It's specifically writing down a revelation that was received. This is as opposed to the prophets whom God told to speak what he was showing them or saying to them. Uh, John in Revelation is specifically instructed to write down. So Revelation, like other apocalyptic literature, it's a literary work. It's a structured literary work. It's not just a collection of prophetic oracles. It's, it's very purposely written, and that helps us, um, that'll help us understand it and read it to appreciate that, that quality about it. Now, reading apocalyptic literature is going to take some effort and some learning for us to know how to read it, but it is possible to overanalyze apocalyptic literature and try to make it say things it's not meant to say. For example, not every detail in every image represents something. Some of them are just there to paint a more vivid picture. Also, apocalyptic literature is not too concerned about putting things in chronological order. And so when you read Revelation, it's possible that some of what we're seeing is happening in parallel rather than sequentially. And it's even possible that some of what we're looking at is referring to the same event or series of events just coming at it from different perspectives. So we don't want to overanalyze, but we want to appreciate apocalyptic literature for what it is. Um, and uh, if you're saying, that's great, Tim, how on earth could it, do I become more familiar with apocalyptic literature? May I recommend this book, which is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. This is sort of a classic on how to read the different genres of Scripture. They have a whole chapter in here on Revelation specifically. 
They have chapters on how to read all the other types of literature you see in Scripture as well. So um, you can look at my copy after the service if you want. You could get your own, but um, that would be a starting point. There's other resources as well, but that's a good one that can, that can get you started. So if we're going to get the most out of Revelation, if we're going to understand it the way it's meant to be understood, we've got to appreciate the genre of literature it is. It is apocalyptic literature, and that's going to be it just it's going to be unfamiliar to us. When we come to Revelation, it also matters that we read it in light of the Old Testament. Revelation draws on the Old Testament a ton. There's imagery that John draws on there from uh, from Genesis one and two, from the plagues, from the Exodus from Egypt, from Isaiah, from uh, Daniel, from Ezekiel, from others of the Old Testament prophets, from Zechariah, and and uh, these are all through Revelation. In fact, Revelation has more Old Testament references than any other book in the New Testament. One scholar counted up that there are over 250 Old Testament references in Revelation. That means that's an average of more than 10 per chapter. And, uh, and, and so there's a lot of reference to the imagery of these passages in the Old Testament. But when John uses that imagery, he doesn't just copy and paste it into what he's saying. It's more like the palette of colors that he paints from as he's painting the picture of what God's showing him, or he could say it's the, the palette that God chose from to paint the picture he's revealing to John. And so it, it, it helps if we understand what those Old Testament passages are talking about and what those images were. And this was something that for the people that first received Revelation, they would have been familiar with those passages. They would have a great starting point for understanding what does that imagery mean in the Old Testament, so they would have had a good real head start on, okay, what does that mean in Revelation as, as John's presenting this picture of what's been revealed to him? Now, many of us aren't that familiar, aren't as familiar with those passages. And so, again, the more we can soak ourselves in the Old Testament, the more we can understand those parts of Scripture that John is drawing from and referring to and that God's drawing our attention to, the more we can understand those, the better we're going to understand what Revelation's trying to communicate. So it really matters that we read it in light of the Old Testament. Also, when we read Revelation, we've got to read it with its original context in view, which is saying that we've got to read it like we read any other book of the Bible. That's our starting point for understanding a passage of Scripture, is to say, what did it mean to the people who received it? And then we're positioned to ask, what does it mean for us? And that's true for Revelation, no less than any part of Scripture. The people who received Revelation understood it and they were able to apply it to their lives. It goes against everything we know about the purpose of Scripture to think that Revelation could only be understood by an American Bible scholar in 1978 sitting with a newspaper in one hand and his Bible in the other, or that it can only be understood by someone in 2024 watching the news. And this actually goes against what Revelation says about itself. Uh, At the beginning of Revelation, in Revelation 1 Three, uh, John is instructed to write that what he's seeing because the time is near, and that's repeated again at the end of Revelation in twenty two ten. Then he told me, "Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the scroll because the time is near. Do not seal them up. This is not a message that is only for some future generation. It's something that's meant to be read and understood now. Don't seal it up. The time is near." Now, Revelation applies to us, just like all the Scripture does. It's pertinent for us, but it doesn't only apply to us 
or only to whatever the final generation is before Jesus returns. It meant something to its original hearers. There were things that, that John is talking about in Revelation that were fulfilled in the experience of the people that first read it because the time was near. But there are also things in Revelation that haven't yet been fulfilled and won't be until the end of history. Jesus has not yet returned. The heavens and the earth have not yet been recreated. And so there's some that's the initial fulfillment, some that's a future fulfillment. And again, this is exactly what Revelation says. Revelation 1.19, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So write what you're seeing, what is now, and what will take place later. So some parts of Revelation had an immediate fulfillment in the context of those who received it. Some have a future fulfillment. And here's where it gets tricky. For some, it's both. There are some things referred to in Revelation that had an initial fulfillment then and will have a fuller, deeper, final fulfillment at the end of history. Now, right now, with our perspective, it's really hard to tell what's what especially with all the imagery that's used and because we're unfamiliar with apocalyptic literature. Someday, you know, in eternity, we'll look back with perfect hindsight and go, oh, of course that's what it meant. How did we miss it? Just like now we look back on the prophecies about Jesus' first coming and go, oh, that's what it meant. Of course we see it. But right now, we're, we, we, often, we often have a hard time. But we have a better chance of understanding and applying Revelation correctly we ask the question, what did this mean for those who first received it? How would they have understood it? And then we build from that as our foundation. Now, all that I'm saying so far in those first three things uh, should be setting us up for my fourth suggestion, which is read it humbly. There is a long list of people throughout history who, have, who, who just knew what Revelation meant. They had it figured out. They knew it only to be proven wrong when history didn't unfold the way they thought Revelation predicted it would. The gentleman who wrote 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1988, just one sad example. I remember when I was younger hearing that the beast with ten horns in Revelation was the European Union because they had just admitted their tenth member state. Well, now the European Union has a lot more than ten members, and so I guess that wasn't the case. And I could give a lot more examples from things just in my lifetime where people have said, oh, it obviously means this, and then it, it, that hasn't proved to be the case. But this is something that's been an issue for more than just the last 50 years. This is something that as you look through every era of church history, there are people who have made these prognostications, who have said, I totally get it, and they've been proven wrong. So, uh, so read Revelation humbly. And it matters that we read it to understand it. It matters that we study it and come to conclusions about what it means. It matters that we, we land on some convictions of, of this is what I think it's talking about. It's good to land on those convictions, but hold them humbly and hold them charitably. And understand that people who love Jesus as much as you do, and who are as committed to the truth and authority of Scripture as you are, understand those passages differently. And we can be charitable with each other then, when we say, here's what it means, I'm pretty convinced, here's my reasons why, I might be wrong, but I'm going to do my best to live in light of it as I understand it. The fifth, uh, my fifth point is the most important one. Just read it. <laughs> don't let the parts you don't understand keep you from applying and being encouraged by the parts you can understand. 
It is better to read Revelation and come away with only a general sense of what it means than to have no sense of what it means because you're avoiding reading it. You don't have to know whether the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets happen sequentially or in parallel. You 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 may not know whether the New Jerusalem is a description of the church or a literal future dwelling place or both. You don't have to know whether you're a preterist, a futurist, or an idealist in your approach to Revelation. You don't have to know that to get a lot out of it. You can read Revelation and get, oh, in the end, the bad guys lose. They're actually destroyed, especially the ones who are opposing God and persecuting God's people. And you can read it and say, in the end, Jesus is awesome and worthy. And in the end, Jesus wins. And if I believe in Jesus and I'm faithful to him, I share in that victory with him. You can read it and understand that the perfect judge will someday bring perfect justice to everyone, including you and the people who have hurt you. You can still read Revelation and understand that eventually things are going to be even better than they were in the Garden of Eden, and we're going to dwell with God forever. And those are things you can take away from Revelation, even if you don't get the nuances of every image, even if you don't catch every Old Testament reference, even if it doesn't make perfect sense, we can still understand so much of what it says that should encourage us and strengthen us. So whatever you do, don't avoid Revelation, but here's some tips to read it profitably. As we come to the end of our feast emphasis, I want to conclude the same way we began, which is by reflecting on Scripture. And I want to do this uh, using uh, the same thing we did the first Sunday, uh, the practice of Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina is Latin. It means divine reading or holy reading. And it's just a way of reading Scripture that positions us to hear God speak to us through His Word. Remember, that's the point of reading Scripture. It's not to gain information It's not to gain knowledge. It's to encounter the author of Scripture in His Word and to hear Him speak to us. So Lectio Divina just just is a tool we can use to um, to help that to happen. It's a way we position ourselves to hear Him speak. There's four movements to Lectio. Let me remind you of them briefly, and then we'll practice it together. The first is that you read the passage. When you're doing this by yourself, you read it over a few times. Read it slowly. Read it out loud. When we do it in a group, I'll read the passage a few times. You're just listening or looking for that word or phrase that God is highlighting for you. So what's the word or phrase that your attention is drawn to? What's the word or phrase that's highlighted for you? So you're, you're reading, looking for that word or phrase, and then when we have it, we move to the next uh, movement, which is to ponder that word. So you turn that over in your mind, and you think about it. You chew on it. You're meditating on it, but this is not the kind of meditation where you're trying to empty your mind. It's the exact opposite. You want your mind filled with this truth from God's Word. And you're not forcing something. You're not trying for some mystical insight. You're just letting God connect that Word that He highlighted to your life. You're just thinking about that Word. And then you move to prayer. And uh, you just let those thoughts you're thinking about that Word turn into prayer, and you voice that to God. You look at that with Him. You talk about it with Him. So you're praying, and then after prayer, the final movement is to rest and respond. Often this is just a time of stillness, as we're in God's presence without a need to be vocal or busy, uh, and we're just letting that truth sink deeper into our soul. We're not rushing away from this encounter with the Lord. Sometimes in this movement, we'll need to make some commitments to respond 
in ways that we can only do so outside of the quiet moment, but we're resting and responding as our, our final step. So we're going to do this this morning with a passage from Revelation, from Revelation 5, 9 through 14. So I'm going to read this for us, and as I do, I just encourage you to listen for the word or phrase that uh, might be highlighted for you. I'll read it probably two or three times. If you want to close your eyes, you can, if that helps you concentrate. But just listen to this as I read it. Lord, we pray that you would speak, that you'd help us, each of us, to see what you want us to see from this part of your word this morning. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and all the elders fell down and worshipped. I'll read it again, just again, listen for that word or phrase. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. i read it one more time. Listen for that word or phrase. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
Now we're going to take a couple minutes just in quiet. We're going to start just by pondering that word or phrase that was highlighted for you. Just think about that for a minute. Now that you're pondering, just turn to prayer. You pray to the Lord about what, what he highlighted for you. And now just take, a, just take a few seconds to just rest. There's responses you need to commit to making outside of this moment. You can make those before the Lord. But just rest. Just be still in the Lord's presence. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for making it alive in our hearts. Thank you for speaking to us. Amen. Lord, as we have come to the end of this feast emphasis, we are grateful for the ways that you uh, increased our appetite for your word, for the revelation you brought to us through it, for the ways as a church we're able to do this together. And Lord, we pray that all the benefit of this season would in no way be lost as we move forward into what you have that's next for us. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to be a people of your word, that you continue to speak to us through scripture, that you would, uh, Lord, continue to help us encounter you in, in the Bible. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.